There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who shall I send? And I will go for us. I'm going to tell you the story of a brother, a terrible brother, probably the worst. Actually, that intro doesn't quite work on this topic, but it's kind of my thing, so let's just leave it alone. He is a son, though. He is the first son ever born on planet Earth, maybe. He might have been a genius. He makes for God his first offering, which God did not ask for. And yet, he is most well known for being the first murderer to splash the pages of history. I'm, of course, speaking of Cain, as in Cain and Abel, as in the firstborn of the most famous couple that ever lived, and that being Adam and Eve. I don't know how it took me this long to get to this topic, but let me tell you, if there is one tale that needs some serious debunking of your Sunday school teachings, it is Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the garden, the snake, the tree, and the apple. Sidebar, it's not an apple. See, I already got you mad and I haven't even started. I'm so excited to begin this topic. I I, I can't even stand it. You're going to be spinning like a top by the time we conclude this, and I hope it makes you question everything you've been taught or lack thereof. My biggest hurdle to date is this topic, and you are going to be defensive, and you won't even know why. However, every time I have brought up a different perspective, like I tend to do, on this topic, I get the most replies of, I don't know about that one, which is beautiful. So my main source of material is a book called The Beast That Crouches at the Door by Rabbi David Foreman. His teachings on the books of the Torah, which is the first five, are so good. I would highly recommend them. I had many different books, podcasts, and lectures on this section of scripture, but the aspect of Cain and how he is thought of came from this book. So I will send a link in the show notes. Go buy it. One of the best lessons I have learned in the past few years is to question everything. If I could encourage you to try one thing on your pass through scriptures this year, it would be this. Take the posture of If I was reading this for the first time, no commentaries, no notes, no baggage from childhood. If this was fresh, what about this reading would strike me as strange? What is missing? Why was that included? What does this want to teach me? If this is a puppet show, where are the strings? You ever listen to a song from your youth later in life? You know all the words, but you never thought twice about it. And then now you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s. You're singing it and you pause and think, man, that song is sad. Or, wow, that guy was going through something. I missed that when I was 12. How about that? Like, uh, take Rockabye Baby, for example. You know, Rockabye Baby in the treetops. Hold on, treetops? Why is a baby in the treetops? Where are the parents? Or Ring Around the Rosie. You know what that song's about? That's a dark one, brother. I mean, look it up if you want. Do you remember the opening diner scene of Reservoir Dogs? They're all sitting around. They start talking about a new radio station they love. 
K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s, the reminiscing. Nice Guy Eddie brings up the night that the lights went out in Georgia. And he says, now I've heard that song. I haven't heard that song since it was big. And when it was big, I must have heard it a million trillion times. Then he says, this is the first time I realized that the girl singing the song is the one who shot Andy. This is the first time I ever realized that the girl singing the song is the one who shot Andy. Wait, I mean, you didn't know that Vicki Lawrence was the one who shot Andy? I thought it was the cheating wife shot Andy. Yeah, but they said that at the end of the song. Yeah, I know, I just heard it. That's what I'm talking about. You call me a And the whole crew says, you know, they say that at the end of the song. He's like, yeah, I see that now. I mean, as obscure as that example sounds, you're going to feel like that a lot in this study. It has been right there the entire time waiting to be explored and discovered and understood, and you missed it. But never again. And with that in mind, let's get into it. I've had a really hard time deciding where to start on this topic to truly see the build I almost have to go back to page one and sit on it for a few hours. I'm not going to do that. But have you ever listened to Dan Carlin's podcast series on the fall of the Roman Empire? It's called Death Rose of the Republic. It is riveting, of course, as everything he does seems to be. It's a six-part series on the last leaders of Rome and how it fell apart. Each episode of the six is, you know, at least an hour and a half, culminating in the last episode, which is over five hours. The reason I say that is because... He said that he wanted to just do a story on Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, you know, and their relationship. But he kept realizing for you to get the depth and width of that tale and appreciate it, he had to set the stage. And he ended up just doing a 10-hour detailed portrayal of the entire fall. I'm not going to get that detail, but I feel, I feel that thought on this topic as Genesis 1 through 11 is my chocolate. And I think if I read nothing else for a year, I would not run out of rabbit holes to explore. The Bible is amazing. You should read the Bible. All right, let's touch on Adam and Eve first, but more importantly, the trees in Eden. Sidebar, first annoying thing to me, it's not the Garden of Eden, it's the Garden in Eden. There is a paradise called Eden, and in that land, there is a garden planted for Adam and Eve to enjoy. Actually, he said for the man to work it and keep it. Fun fact, what are the Levitical priests called to do as their job for the temple? That's right, to work it and to keep it. See that? I'm never going to get through this topic if I keep doing things like that. But um, back on track, at the very center of this place is the tree of life. If you pay attention in your reading of the Bible, you will see this three-layer loop getting to God's hot spot over and over again, whether it's the garden where we have the land, the garden, and Eden, the tree in the middle, or the tabernacle in the tent, or the temple, or us walking around now. I'll get to that later. First, let's talk about another tree that happens to be there, and that is the tree of what? That's right, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What a weird concept, huh? A tree that gives you vision to see if something is good or evil. Why the heck is that there? Great question. I believe the answer to this will change the way you view Scripture. So here's the stage. We're in paradise, walking, talking, having daily discussions with our Creator, we are in a mountain garden surrounded by living water flowing out of a giant, gorgeous tree that might have been glowing or on fire, but I'm not getting into that. It's right in the middle. There is gold everywhere, onyx and other jewels. Spiritual beings are cascading. Let's say a lion is looking in your face while you sit in perfect weather. It never rains. Wind in your hair as you eat the most delicious fruits ever thought of. We are ruling and reigning with Yahweh with access to eternal life. 
man, I can't wait to get back to this. Just sit on that for a second. Remember that. Eyes on the prize, Violet. Eyes on the prize. All right, there's one rule, one thing that's off limits. Or flip that thought. There's just one thing that can screw up this party, and that is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are told it is not to be eaten under any circumstances. And why is that, God? Because for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is Genesis 2. Okay, one thing I'm going to tweak here to help our English bias and our baggage. The word evil here just does not work. It's too heavy in American English. It doesn't convey the meaning here. It takes you off the tracks before you even know it. This is tov and ra, good and bad. If you wanted a mind tool to help your brain think of this, you should think of it as the tree of good and bad. Another better way to think of this portion of scripture is the thought that there's the tree of right and wrong. Better yet, here, it's almost best to think of this as the tree of true and false. That might sound like a small detail, but I'll explain it as we go. It's just that all of those stances will help you see the story better. All right, so I need to spend some time on this tree topic because it's one of the most important decisions a human has ever made, and it happens before we even get out of the starting blocks. It's like when people ask you, why is there so much suffering in the world and death? This is the start of that story, Genesis 3. Now, I would counter that and not put everything on poor Eve. I would say Genesis 3 with the snake, but also Genesis 6 with the spiritual beings breaking the barrier of the heavenly realm and taking the human women, and also the Babel event in Genesis 11. Those three events, that's not why the world is so off kilter now, but that is a whole other podcast. Back to the trees. First, we have the tree of life, the hot spot of God's presence, and it's in the middle of the garden. Are we not to eat of that tree? Never says that, does it? God wanted to give us access to eternal life. We had it. He says to eat of every tree of the garden in Genesis 2, except one tree. But then after we mess up, after we eat of the forbidden tree, then what does God say? At the end of Genesis 3, after he knows what they have done, he says, quote, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Sidebar, the us here is a full discussion as well. I know that. In knowing good and bad. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take, take is huge, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden, end quote. You see what happens there? Now we're seeing things in a different way as human beings now. Before eating of the tree, eating of the fruit of this tree, our thought process now and our desires, those are now part of the equation. We were in lockstep with our creator God. Now we are knowing good and bad. This is a new variable and we can't handle this. God can't let us live forever now because our equilibrium is off. In short, this is shorthand for a new way of looking at moral choices. There is now a new factor in the human mind after knowing good and bad the way God does. The difference is we are not perfect. God is perfect. We now have a cloud in our vision. Think of it this way. Now every decision that Eve or Adam or you or I would now make is not only about what God wants anymore. It is now also about what I want. You see that? Packed inside every moral decision from then until today, we have an extra problem and it is called desire. Can I rise above these desires? Sure. But that wasn't the original plan. Now I have to master my own brain and that is not always easy and you know it and so do I. Even if I am actively trying to not be evil and have good intentions, what I think is good 
might actually just be something I want. When I'm looking at life through the filter of my own subjectivity, I might think that X is what God wants for me, but perhaps it is simply what I want for me. You see that? That's a, that's a deep one, man. All right, let's go back a tick. When something is good in the Bible, it is more than just black and white of morals. Remember Genesis 1, when God first uses that word good, when God saw the light that he made and it was good, what did he mean by that? Or when God said, it is not good for man to be alone, what did he mean by that? Was the light simply morally good? Was it evil for man not to be alone? It seems to be more of a desirable situation, doesn't it? So now that we have this filter and can use it, we have the chance of screwing it up. So God had to take the ability at eternal life away from us because we are going to make many, many poor decisions, and that can't go on for eternity with God. He can't be near it. So Rabbi Foreman has a great example of this in his book. He says it like this. When a child pushes away, you know, let's say Brussels sprouts. A child pushes away the Brussels sprouts because they are bad. So then you give the child the option of ice cream, and he sees that as what? As good. Is the child thinking of the nutritional benefits or the long-term factors of his choice? Is he thinking about the fat content of the ice cream or the potential for diabetes down the road? No. He is simply telling you what is good in his eyes. Remember Samson? How'd that work out for him? So it becomes less about the food and starts to tell you more about the child and the lens they see things through. That's how the all-knowing God sees things and processes them differently. My desires now play a role in my decision-making, and if you have ever bought or sold something to someone, you know this to be true. What's the saying? People buy on emotion and then justify with logic, right? So now, such is life. Evil can now get dressed up in pretty clothes or a short dress, and when it does, it makes it hard for us to know the difference between something that is virtuous or merely just seductive. Speaking of seductive, let's, let's pivot to the snake here, okay? You're not going to like this. What the heck is going on here, God? This wrinkle is quite vexing in the creation story. Is it a snake or is it the devil? It's Satan, right? Satan's in paradise somehow, just placed there, I guess. Master of lies walking around. Okay, disclaimer. For all of the topics I talk about and have studied and rethought, this one seems to shake the Sunday school cage more than most. So even before I start, believe me, I know this is just one that I've wrestled to the ground and I really think this makes sense, but I'm just giving you a position. So if you get mad at this topic, I understand. Okay. Many have the stance that the snake is Satan, capital S, the devil, pitchfork, red body, goatee. Maybe that's just the Bugs Bunny upbringing I had, but that might be the case. I admit this is a tough one. I know in the book, the author says on this topic, as a Jewish man, I have difficulty with the notion of an independent source of evil in the universe serving as a counterweight to God. Jewish thought tends to see Satan in different terms, not as one who opposes the divine plan, but as a sort of a heavenly prosecutor who is part and parcel of the divine plan, end quote. Hmm. That is interesting. And you want to know where you got that position from? It's in the text. So whether you see the snake as just the most cunning animal in the kingdom, remember Eden is basically a, I mean, it feels like a different planet, a different dimension compared to the earth we know now, post-Babel, post-flood. We'll explore that one day. 
Or if you see the snake as a rebellious member of the divine council who uses the snake as a facade to trick the humans, I completely understand both takes. But, but I do need to say one thing that you might not have known or heard that might help this case, and I bet most of the listeners didn't know this. Here we go. The word Satan is never capitalized in the Hebrew scriptures. I'll say that again. The word Satan is never capitalized in the Hebrew scriptures, a.k.a. the Old Testament. Your English translation will capitalize it and have nothing in front of it, but that is not the way it was intended to the original audience. And the vast majority of the time, it comes with the word ha in front of it, ha-satan. That means the Satan. That is because it is a title. It is a role. Ha-satan means the adversary, the opposer, the one who stands against, like Foreman says, the prosecutor. Here are a few examples of this. Look at Job 1. I dare you to look at Job 1. It's a divine council setting. God is talking to his lieutenants, the sons of God, not angels. Angels are different. Angels are messengers. Sons of God are a different spiritual being. This is a divine council setting. And it says, quote, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan also came along with them, end quote. So next God has a discussion with the adversary. He's asking him, you know, where have you been? And the Satan says, I've just been going to and fro on the earth, walking it up and down. Go read it. It says that. He's basically saying to God, I'm just patrolling my post. I'm doing my job. I'm walking the earth and testing the humans because what does God do to his chosen people? He tests them. And then keep reading. You know what God says next? He says to Satan, have you ever, have you considered my servant Job? Man, there are none like Job on the earth, Satan. He's so upright, so upstanding. He's the best. And Satan says, well, yeah, because you give him everything. He's rich, great kids, great wife, great house and land. Let me, let me poke at him. Let me mess with him. You'll see. He will curse you. Just watch. And God does what? He allows it. He says, okay, don't touch him. Don't touch him personally and then report back. Isn't that crazy, man? That's in the Bible. The Bible's amazing. You should read the Bible. Here's another one that is about as on the nose as I can get. It's, it's almost too on the nose, and it's annoying. In Zechariah, which is an example of apocalyptic literature, just like the Revelation at the end. And in chapter 3, we have a discussion of who should be the next high priest. They're talking about Joshua, not that Joshua, getting the job, and we have a heavenly courtroom setting. Verse 1, quote, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And the Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him, end quote. Dude, he's literally a prosecutor in this scene. He is doing his job of opposing the humans. He's tearing down Joshua. That's his job. Remember, Satan is not anti-God. He's more anti-human. So the position that Satan is a rebellious, fallen spiritual being, that makes sense to me. He just didn't want to do the rule and reign thing with these mud creatures that Yahweh created on earth. He didn't like that idea. He was the shining star, bright and beautiful. You know what Lucifer means in Latin? Light bearer, light bringer. Look at Job again. Chapter 38 this time. This is when God is dressing down Job and asking him some tough questions. Basically saying to Job, if you are so smart and great, then why don't you try and run things for a while? Tell me what should happen next on earth, Job. Go ahead. And he also asked him, where were you when I was telling the ocean to come this far and then stop? Were you there, Job? No. 
Then he says something else interesting. He says, quote, where were you, he's talking to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? End quote. You see that? When the Godhead was creating, when he was creating the earth, Father, Son, Spirit, working in perfect harmony, creating the world, the spiritual beings are cheering. They're, they're shouting for joy. So the thought that the Satan didn't like the whole Adam thought and delegating power to these mud creatures made from the dirt. So he rebelled. I get it. I get that position. Hell, we're, we're probably all wrong. <laughs> if you look at one of the most brilliant New Testament writers said, John says in his revelation, quote, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, capital S, and deceiver of the entire world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him, end quote. That is Revelation 12, 9. As John loves to do, he tosses all the aspects and nuances into a blender and hits you in the mouth with it. It is so insightful. If I asked Job, I mean, if I asked John, John, is it a snake, the devil, or a rebellious spiritual being? He might simply say, yeah, Tyler, you moron. If you're looking for video surveillance footage in these writings, you will be disappointed again and again. Got it. Thank you, John. See you in heaven, hopefully. But, but one point I wanted to show you was that Hasatan is a title. You guys mad at me? You're mad at me, aren't you? Sorry, but topics like this is why I did this podcast. Now, I will say that in the New Testament, they do talk about Satan as a capital S. He is the leader. He's the leader of lies. He is working against Christ and the whole kingdom come idea. So something happened in his role from the beginning of time through the Hebrew scriptures, through the 400 years of silence to the time of Christ, the second temple period writings. That's a whole other podcast. And I, I can't get into that. You guys will really hate me on that one. So what's the other take? That this is a snake, a serpent, a nakash in Hebrew, chaos monster, and quite possibly he is an angel of deceit disguised as a snake or could be an animal. Take your current mind set blinders off. This is a different earth. He has other interesting features. For starters, he talks. Okay, so that's weird. Well, I mean, it's weird to us, but Eve doesn't seem to be surprised by that, does she? It is represented as a given. One day a snake came up to Eve and struck up a convo. No big deal. One could check one of the Second Temple period writings. It's similar to the Book of Enoch, and it's called the Jubilees. And in chapter 328, it says, quote, And on that day was closed the mouths of the beasts, and of cattle, and of birds, and of whatever walketh, and of whatever moveth, so that they could no longer speak, for they had all spoken with one another with one lip and with one tongue. End quote. All right, moving on. All right, so he not only talks, he walks. So we get that nugget from the end of the story where one of his punishments is to crawl on his belly for the rest of his days and eat dust. So what did he eat before? And most importantly, he's really smart. According to the text in Genesis 3, quote, and the snake was more cunning, more crafty, more shrewd than any beast of the field, end quote. Stop thinking of the animal kingdom of today. This is not a chimp or an orangutan. It's not a dolphin or an octopus. This is the smartest creature that God had created in Eden. 
The intellectual discussion with Eve might be your first clue of the intelligence of this creature. So when we put that all together, we got a walking, talking, brilliant beast that potentially enjoyed something better than dust in his prime. And what does our antagonist propose to Eve? Take a closer look. Most translations say something like, quote, did God really say that you may not eat from any of the trees of the garden? End quote. That's, that's 3.1, Genesis 3.1. But here's yet another example where the English translation is slightly missing the mark from its intended sentence. A, a better and more literal reading of this would say, even if God said, do not eat of the tree, do not eat from any of the trees of the garden, dot, dot, dot. See what I mean? It, it trails, it literally trails off into nothingness in the original text. So you can see why the translators, they didn't want to leave it like that. It's a half sentence. And after hearing this, I almost give that sentence a little Larry David flavor, you know? Even if God said, don't eat of any of the trees of the garden, I mean, come on, what's the big deal? I can see that. Another famous rabbi named Samson, funny enough, had an interesting take on the emphasis of a, a, a different word in that sentence. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, to be exact, who happens to be a legend, by the way. He said, what if you took the focus off the end where it trails off into nothingness and you focus on the word said? So instead of reading it as, even if God said, don't eat, so what? Hirsch asked, what if we read it differently and sounded like this? Even if God said, don't eat, so what? See the difference there? It kind of changes it, don't you think? So the snake has a really good plan. He isn't going against God's authority or his role. Remember, God is very, very real to Adam and Eve. He isn't a thought experiment or an idea. He isn't a wizard on a cloud in the sky that an Ivy League science professor or a disgruntled, angry teen made fun of you for believing in. He is real. He takes walks with them. He talks to them daily. The snake is smarter than that. He cuts to the core of what it is to be human in a brilliant way. What he is saying is, you are taking God you're taking the words too literally, Eve. You're smarter than that, Eve. God created you. You don't think he wants you to be happy? Come on. The fruit of the tree is gorgeous, and I bet it's delicious. You desire it, don't you, Eve? Let's say you do desire it. Where do you think those desires came from? Who put those inside of you? Exactly. God didn't really mean to not eat of it. You just aren't listening to the passions inside you. You got to go with your gut on this one. You are overthinking this classic human. I don't know. Maybe it's me. I'm just a snake, but I think you're selling yourself short here, Eve. You see what he did there? Think about it like this. How does God make himself known to the animals? Does that even happen? There's no classroom, no Sunday school to answer that question. No Bible or set of laws given to them from a flaming mountaintop. Is there an instruction manual for a new bird or a lizard as it's born? How does a turtle know to run for the water out of the sand as soon as it hatches? If the creator speaks to them, it is in the form of instinct. Their desires, there's something inside of them. It might be pretty basic, food, water, hide, run, mate, but they follow the laws of nature, right? If you've ever seen that Instagram account called Nature is Metal, you might see how ruthless this path is. But an animal isn't going to therapy for hurt feelings after a kill or a near-death experience with a predator. Human beings are the only creatures that have the potential to even feel sorry for themselves. So when an animal follows its instincts, its passions, its desires, it is doing exactly what it was designed to do in this fallen world. The creator is pulsing inside of their body. 
calling to them from that spot. This is what the snake is harping on. Eve, you are listening to the words too much. You got to listen to the little man in your stomach. The little man knows all. And that's where the creator is talking to you. This is where Eve could have stopped things. This is where humans show a distinct difference from beasts of the field. It's not intelligence that just makes us human. I mean, I read a new study every month about how advanced a dolphin is or an octopus, like I said. This walking, talking serpent might be the best example that being a human is not just the ability to walk, talk, and do algebra. I don't think that's where humanity lies. It's, it's obviously part of it, but I think it's this. Listen to this. If when God speaks to you or you get a message from him and you filter that message primarily through your passions and desires and your current set of circumstances only, then you are thinking like an animal. Yet, if you are able to step outside of your animalistic plots and plans, if you can examine something critically, if desire is something you have, not something you are, if you feel God calling you to rise above your impulses or to channel them, then you are thinking like a human, like an image bearer, like an ambassador for the kingdom. You are not a beast. Eve shows this when she sees the fruit and loves it in three different ways. Genesis 3, 6 says, quote, And the woman saw that the tree was good to eat, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable as a means to make one wise, end quote. Or the last word could say, desirable to contemplate. Eve is seeing that this tree is checking all the desire boxes. It is dripping with allure. Why would God put this here and then ask you to control yourself? Hmm. Maybe go ask Samson, go ask Jonah. I think it's because it leads to death. Animals don't watch sunsets. They don't let sand run through their fingers just to watch it do so. They don't sit by a babbling brook just to appreciate the calming sounds of nature. We are a different being. We get to experience things more, dip, more deeply. So when you turn that off and you focus on your immediate desires, you are robbing yourself of how human you can be. And you have met these people. So, so now what, Tyler? I guess I should become a monk, go sit in a hole and don't get tempted by anything. <laughs> Sounds great. Where do I sign up? No wonder everyone hates Christians. This is more Bible Belt Southern guilt. All right. I hear you on that. Let me regroup here. I'm not saying that we need to empty our life from desires. I don't think that is a life at all. I'm pretty sure you would agree. That would leave one with no reason to get up in the morning, right? And you've met those people as well. <laughs> a famous German philosopher of the 19th century named Friedrich Nietzsche would agree with you also. He was famous in one of his writings called Beyond Good and Evil, where he railed against organized religion for just that reason. How all they talk about is taking things away, get rid of your passions and your wants and desires. That was a big criticism of Western religion at the time, and it still is in certain denominations. He said that the minute you take away a human's passion, that person fails to live. And I have to agree with Nietzsche here. Our appreciation for these passions is a huge part of what sets us apart as humans. Although I have to say I'm more of a Dostoevsky guy myself. I mean, if we're going to compare old school sad authors... That list begins and ends with Fedor, in my humble opinion. I mean, you guys read Brothers, Karamazov, or Crime and Punishment? Unreal. By the way, I have to say this on Nietzsche. I got, that from, I got this from Daryl Cooper of the Martyr Made podcast. There was a famous quote attributed to Winston Churchill, falsely, I believe, and it said, if you aren't a liberal in your 20s, you have no heart. But if you aren't a conservative by your 30s, you have no brain. Ha ha, get it? 
This isn't a political podcast, so save your emails. It was just a stance to set up this quote. Daryl updated it and said, I think it's better. If you, have, if you weren't reading Nietzsche at 20, you have no heart. But you haven't transitioned to Dostoevsky by your 30s, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Where, where was I even going with this? I got to get back on track. Wrap up this episode. Okay, passions. As stated, our passions are our gasoline, our caffeine, our dopamine hit. It's what makes us get up and go. We cannot extinguish that, and the biblical authors emphatically agree with this. But we as humans have a hard time directing these passions to good. We need guardrails. We need a navigational system, and that is what the text does for us. The Torah, the Tanakh, and the New Testament writings, that is our new tree of life. That is what Jesus talked about when he said he would come back and not destroy these writings, but fulfill them. The law, the prophets, the Psalms were designed to direct our passions towards something useful, something productive, something holy even. Our ambitions, our wants, our sexuality even, the Torah doesn't ask those to get destroyed, but steer them, master them, put them to good, just like he asked Cain to do in the next story. Oh, did you think I was actually going to talk about Cain and Abel in a podcast titled Cain? Well, that makes sense, I guess. I'm sorry, I just had to get the point home that we can't read these Bible stories in a vacuum. When we go over Cain and Abel, I want this story locked in your brain. I want the echoes of Eden and the decisions of Adam and Eve to be at the forefront. Hell, I want the first 50 pages of the Bible to be shouting at you from any story you read in the Bible. It is so interwoven. Nothing is more frustrating than being in a church building service and the only portion of scripture is one sentence with no context. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Corinthians. What letter? What year was it sent? Where is Corinth? Who's the audience? No wonder people have such a tough time understanding the Bible. And yes, after attaining the knowledge of good and evil, we as humans did in fact start to see like God. The snake was right. We became much more passionate and insistently creative, but we are not God. We are only halfway there. God knows where to stop, where to draw the line. We as humans... We got to cross the line many times so that we've gone too far. And you have experienced that, and so have I. So there is now friction in this beautiful world. We jacked up the center of gravity. There is a thorn in the lion's paw. If there is no friction in a car engine, how far can it run? Forever, exactly. But we've thrown sand into that engine. There's a grinding noise. There is smoke under the hood, and that is going to play out in the coming stories. And watch how quickly we go from the snake to Cain, to Lamech, to the Nephilim, to Nimrod, and the building of Babel. That's Genesis 1 through 11. The rest of Genesis is Abraham and his family. The first step in that disharmony is a tough one, and it is that we must pick up and go. We are exiled. We must leave paradise, driven out and banished to the east. I'm reading a book right now by Seth Postel titled Adam as Israel, Genesis 1 through 3 as the introduction to the Torah and the Tanakh. I would highly recommend it. It's kind of academic, but he shows the connection of Genesis and the idea of exile, that theme as it plays out for the Israelites. And here's how it wraps up. And this is where I will wrap up at the end of Genesis 3. This is me riffing on 22 to 24. So then the Lord God said, well, the man has become like one of us. He shouldn't be allowed to put out his hand and take from the tree of life. That would be really bad for humanity. So the Lord drove them out, shalak in Hebrew, drove him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken after he banished, which is the Hebrew garash. 
So we have two important words there, salak and garash, drive out and banish, drive out and banish. After the Lord did that, he placed him to the east side of the garden and a cherubim with a flaming sword flashing. So keywords again, drive out, banish to the east. This is all exile vocab. And what you read through the Bible a few times, it is crystal clear how they are doing this. The narrator is winking at you again. Hosea 9, quote, all the evils in the town of Gilgosh, I have come to despise their evil deeds, so I will garrosh them from my house. Jeremiah 28, I have put an iron yoke on the neck of the nations. Everyone will serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Oh, Israel, I am about to shalak you, send you out, drive you out from the face of the land. You just start seeing it. Your antennas go up and you think, oh, that's exile language. Oh, to the east, got it. That's a callback. It's a reminder. This isn't a scribal or biblical error as people who never go one step deeper, they like to say that. This isn't a glitch in the matrix. When God says that if you eat the tree, you will die, and then they don't die but get banished to the east, what he's saying is in the slot of consequence, the author has inserted banishment to the east for the place of death. So they want you to infer that exile is death, separation. And Ezekiel picks up on this hard when he's talking about Israel's exile in Babylon as death in the valley of dry bones. You see that? And then on the flip side of that coin, he also depicts the return from exile as what? Resurrection. Come on, dude. Same punishment for Cain, banishment to the east. And then we keep rolling and get to Genesis 11, and now it's the whole earth. They all journey to the east, one language, and what do they build there? Babylon. And then they are scattered. So Genesis 3 through 11 shows a depiction that all humanity is in a crab swirl of death that leads to exile in Babylon. Again, this isn't a mistake. It's brilliant writing. It is a foreshadowing of the people as a whole making almost terminal decisions that stall in Babylon. So as I said at the beginning, I want you to look at these stories with new eyes, with questions of a child, if they were reading it for the first time and not beaten over the head with tough information and no thought. Why would God put this tree in paradise if he doesn't want us to eat it? What was in it for the snake? Why did knowing good and evil affect Adam's perception of being naked? Why did Eve miscommunicate God's restrictions of the tree so poorly when talking with the snake? Why did God reject Cain's offering? Why is the story of Cain so eerily similar to the story of Eden? Humanity now no longer feeling perfect in their own skin, are also now no longer in their perfect home the Creator made for him. They are in the wilderness, and God in his mercy provides them with clothes for the journey. Their new normal is harsh, their decisions are fogged, their passions are high, and what we see next is not a kingdom of heaven, not an abode of saints or a celestial city, but a murder scene. And we will pick it up there when we get to part two of Cain, crestfallen and cursed. I am Tyler Parker and Sunday School is out. Yeah.